0: Hi guys! Just a reminder that it being spooky season and in honor of Halloween coming up, Caroline and I made this and last episode with two scary short stories for our quote-unquote spooky shorts. This is debuting before our much-anticipated Halloween episode. Whether it be wicked, weird, or grim, the spooky shorts will center around what we love best, stories that give us goosebumps and leave us wondering. Carolina and I both chose to read short stories from books today. And you'll see why. These are some really haunting tales. So with that, sit back, relax, and get a little bit wicked weird and grim. Hi guys. Before I get
1: started on these two spooky ghost stories that I'm going to share with you guys, I wanted to add kind of a disclaimer. I'm reading both of these stories straight from a compilation book called Ghost of the Carolina Coasts. It's by someone called Terence Zepke. I bought this book on vacation when I was about 12 years old, and I read it over and over back then, but this was the first time as an adult that I dug the book back out and actually, like, read through it, and unfortunately, this book has a lot of romanticization of slavery and has some concerning descriptions, maybe. I don't even know what the right word would be for what happens with this, but there's, like, a concerning moment involving Native Americans. So I really just wanted to clarify to you guys that today I would definitely not buy this book. And I do not recommend that you go out and buy it either. Please do not spend your money on this. There are so many things that you could spend your money on that are not harmful. This is not something I would buy today if I came across it. I would definitely put it back down like it burned me. So just a reminder to like choose carefully what things you spend your money on, you know, what books you buy, what authors you choose to support that kind of thing. Because, you know, your money does a lot to give them a platform in order to use problematic language or harmful stereotypes or you know, whatever other harmful thing that they may be doing. So yeah, without further ado, I'm going to get started reading I've chosen very carefully which stories out of this book that i read to make sure that none of them have romanticization of slavery or anything like that in it because i definitely don't want to contribute to that since it is such a problem in our world so without further ado here are these two ghost stories this one is called the mysterious light at naco station it's one of the most intriguing and gruesome stories you'll ever hear It took place in 1868 at Mako Station, formerly called Farmer's Turnout, a stop along the Atlantic Coast Line Railroad. The station was located at Brunswick County's town of Mako, about 19 miles west of Wilmington, North Carolina. The tiny town's train station was just another stop until one incredible night. Joe Baldwin was a train conductor on the route that ran back and forth between the coast and nearby inland towns. As his train was pulling into the station that night, Conductor Joe made a devastating realization. The last car had come unhooked and was blocking the tracks where another train was soon to arrive. In those days, the cars of the wood-burning trains were linked together with couplers and pins. Some of the pins had worked their way loose and fallen off, leaving a solitary car stranded. Baldwin began to panic, knowing the imminent danger, and he did the only thing he could with such limited time. He seized a lantern and ran to the car platform, where he tried to signal the other train. The brave old conductor heard the engine and knew it was bearing down fast. He leaned over the rail and continued holding the lantern high, moving it up and down and around as much as he dared in a frenzied effort to warn the conductor. It is unclear whether the other conductor just didn't see Joe, or whether he simply did not realize the meaning of the light. Whatever the case, the single car and train collided with fatal results. Bits of steel were strewn up to a mile away. When rescuers dug through the wreckage, they found poor Joe Baldwin's mangled body, but not his head. And although the search was long and exhaustive, the missing head was never recovered. Soon after that tragic night, locals claimed they saw an inexplicable light coming from the swamp around Mako Station. Those who saw it reported the white light was about 20 feet above the ground and moved in the same fashion as Joe had frantically swung his signal light. The consensus was the light was Joe Baldwin's spirit, roaming the tracks and swampy area hunting for his head. The hundreds who have claimed to see the bobbing, eerie light say it is almost impossible to describe. The faint illumination in the distance gets brighter and faster and then zooms by the witnesses and disappears, leaving them wondering what they saw. Headless Joe Baldwin and the strange illumination became known nationally in 1889 when President Cleveland himself saw the light. The train carrying our nation's leader had to refuel at Mako station. So the president got off and walked along the tracks. During his walk, he saw two lights and questioned a nearby railroad employee as to why there were two when typically only one signal light is used. The young man answered, but sir, there is only one light. When President Cleveland persisted, he had briefly seen another illumination and pointed in the direction from which it had come. The man slowly nodded, knowingly, and then told the President the story of one unforgettable night at Mako Station and the resulting mysterious light. After this, many came to try to explain the vanishing light. They came from across the state and the country, including an investigator from Washington, D.C., a Smithsonian Institute research team, a corps of engineers, and even a professor at Duke University. The explanations did not satisfy those who had seen the light. Some of the men said it could be automobile headlight reflections, and the others claimed it was a haze that sometimes forms off of a swamp. Numerous sightings of the light, however, predate the invention of the car. And the ominous glow didn't really resemble swamp haze anyway, or phosphorus gas as it is scientifically called. Many newspapers and magazines, such as Life, were intrigued and pursued the ghostly occurrence, but to no avail. Drastic measures were finally taken in April of 1964. A German man by the name of Hans Holzer was called. Known as a professional ghost hunter and the world's leading authority on ghosts, he was hired to solve the mystery and to bring closure to the Joe Baldwin saga. Author of the book Ghost Hunter, Holzer was brought in by the Southeastern North Carolina Beach Association. He was accompanied by his 25-year-old Austrian-born wife, Catherine Holzer. Intrigued by the supernatural, she usually traveled with her husband and helped in his research. She certainly attracted farther media attention since she was reputedly the great-great-great-granddaughter of Catherine the Great and had won an award in New York the previous year for her impressive paintings of ghosts and haunted houses. They landed at New Hanover County Airport and received a tremendous welcome. The mayor, a band, many citizens of the area, and a thousand New Hanover High School students carrying lighted lanterns were on hand to hail the arrival of Hans Holzer and his wife. Despite the big production made by the arrival, Hans Holzer came no closer than anyone else did. A reporter with the Wilmington Star News, Charles Joyner, accompanied by a friend and both of their wives, claimed that they all saw the light one night. Mr. Joyner even wrote about it, saying the glow spread about 300 yards and was a few minutes in duration. It reappeared 40 minutes later, again lasting only a few minutes before disappearing for the rest of the night. According to reports gathered by the many witnesses, there didn't appear to be any reason for the light. It was seen at different times of the year, as well as at different times of night. Some soldiers from Fort Bragg claimed they shot bullets at the light, but found no answers. People continued seeing the strange light, but gave up trying to figure it out. When the station was closed and the tracks were taken up in 1977, the light disappeared. It has never been seen again many say it's because joe baldwin has finally found his head and can now rest in peace buried alive it was a cruel turn of events the boy had been out horseback riding jumping falling logs and tree branches what an excellent rider he was what a wonderful way to pass an afternoon he thought overly cocky sam tried to cross a wide hurdle The horse stumbled and threw him, and he hit his head on a large stone and lost consciousness. When he was found, his parents rushed the young man to the doctor, but it was too late. The physician pronounced him dead. The young man, barely 18 years of age when the terrible accident occurred, was buried in Wilmington's St. James Cemetery. His tombstone reads Samuel R. Jocelyn, 1792 to 1810. His best friend since childhood, Alexander Hostler, was overtaken by grief and guilt. If only he had gone riding with him, maybe he could have done something. The death of his friend pulled at his heart and conscience. Alex couldn't sleep for several days after the funeral as he kept seeing Sam's face every time he closed his eyes. One night, unable to stand it any longer, he decided to visit the grave and say his goodbyes to his longtime friend. He thought maybe that would help him put it behind him and get on with his life. As Alex thought about all the things they would never do together again and how much he missed Sam, a voice interrupted. "'How could you?' it hissed. "'I thought you were my friend! You buried me alive! You buried me alive! Open my coffin and free me!' Thinking he had lost his mind, Alex ran out of the cemetery and tried to forget the incident, but Sam's voice plagued the young man day and night. He could get no peace from it. What if they had all made a mistake? Didn't he owe it to his friend to make sure? Knowing no one would believe him, he told only one person, a very close mutual friend, Louis Toomer. Hysterically, he asked Toomer to go with him to dig up their friend. Although shocked by his friend's plea, he agreed to accompany him since he could see how distraught Alex was. The two waited until well after midnight the following night before going to the grave site. Upon arrival, Alex fervently began digging up Sam's plot. Even though they worked steadily, it took hours to dig up the coffin that had been embedded deep in the earth. When they finally were able to open the coffin, the sight made Louis' tumor cry out in disbelief, while Alex fell to his knees. Sam's body was face down. When they turned him over, Sam looked much as he had when Alex had last seen him, only his fingernails were different. They were all broken and bloody. Obviously from the boy's efforts to open the lid. Scars lined the inside of the coffin around the hinges where Sam had pawed and scraped with all his strength. It must have been a brief struggle for the boy would surely have quickly suffocated. The surviving friend was never the same again. He felt he was responsible, although the doctor had said Sam was dead. The senile physician had obviously mistaken unconsciousness for death. Alexander lost his mental faculties, now diagnosed as a nervous breakdown. From that point on, he spent most of his time at the cemetery pulling up weeds, putting out fresh flowers, and keeping the gravesite in excellent condition. Many years later, a group of teenagers sneaked into the cemetery. They got more than they bargained for when they stopped at Sam's burial site. Soon after they gathered around the headstone, a muffled voice cried out, Get off me! Can't you see I've been buried alive? Before the frightened and confused kids could figure out what to do, a figure was seen coming towards them. As they scattered among the graves and headed for the gate, they heard the staggering figure exclaim, I didn't know, I didn't mean to. Please forgive me, Sam, and leave me in peace.
0: The short story that I chose to read this week is called The Pale Man by Julius Long. It was published in 1934 and a collection of short Halloween stories. I hope you enjoy. I have not yet met the man in number 212. I do not even know his name. He never patronizes the hotel restaurant, and he doesn't use the lobby. On the three occasions when we passed each other by, we did not speak, although we nodded in a semi-cordial, non-committal way. I should like very much to make his acquaintance. It is lonesome in this dreary place. With the exception of the aged lady down the corridor, the only permanent guests are the man in number 212 and myself. However, I should not complain, for this utter quiet is precisely what the doctor prescribed. I wonder if the man in number 212, too, has come here for a rest. He is so very pale. Yet I cannot believe that he is ill, for his paleness is not of a sickly cast, but rather Wholesome in its ivory clarity. His carriage is that of a man enjoying the best of health. He is tall and straight. He walks erectly and with a brisk, athletic stride. His pallor is no doubt congenital, else he would quickly tan under this burning summer sun. He must have traveled here by auto, for he certainly was not a passenger on the train that brought me and he checked in only a short time after my arrival. I had briefly rested in my room and was walking down the stairs when I encountered him ascending with his bag. It is odd that our venerable bellboy did not show him to his room. It is odd too that, with so many vacant rooms in the hotel, he should have chosen number 212 at the extreme rear. The building is a long, narrow affair three stories high. The rooms are on the east side as the west wall is flush with a decrepit business building. The corridor is long and drab, and its stiff, bloated paper exudes a musty, unpleasant odor. The feeble electric bulbs that light it shine dimly as from a tomb. Revolted by this corridor, I insisted vigorously upon being given number 201, which is at the front and blessed with southern exposure. The room clerk, a disagreeable fellow with a Hitler mustache, was very reluctant to let me have it as it is ordinarily reserved for his more profitable, transient trade. I fear my stubborn insistence has made him an enemy. If only I had been as self-assertive thirty years ago, I should now be a full-fledged professor instead of a broken-down assistant. I still smart from the cavalier manner in which the president of the university summarily recommended my vacation. No doubt he acted for my best interests, The people who have dominated my poor life invariably have oh well the summer's rest will probably do me considerable good it is pleasant to be away from the university there is something positively gratifying about the absence of the graduate student face if only it were not so lonely i must devise a way of meeting the pale man in number 212. perhaps the room clerk can arrange matters I have been here exactly a week, and if there is a friendly soul in this miserable little town, he has escaped my notice. Although the tradespeople accept my money with flattering eagerness, they studiously avoid even the most casual conversation. I am afraid I can never cultivate their society unless I can arrange to have my ancestors recognized as local residents for the last hundred and fifty years. Despite the coolness of my reception, I have been frequently venturing abroad. In the back of my mind, I have cherished hopes that I might encounter the Pale Man in number 211. Incidentally, I wonder why he has moved from number 212. There is certainly little advantage in coming only one room nearer to the front. I noticed the change yesterday when I saw him coming out of his new room. We nodded again, and this time I thought I detected a certain malign satisfaction in his somber black eyes. He must know that I am eager to make his acquaintance, yet his manner forbids overtures. If he wants to make me go all the way, he can go to the devil. I am not the sort to run after anybody. Indeed, the surly diffidence of the room clerk has been enough to prevent me from questioning him about his mysterious guest. I wonder where the pale man takes his meals. I have been absenting myself from the hotel restaurant and patronizing the restaurants outside. At each, I have ventured inquiries about the man in number 210. No one at any restaurant remembered his having been there. Perhaps he has entrée into the Brahmin homes of this town, and again he may have found a boarding house. I shall have to learn if there be one. The pale man must be difficult to please, for he has again changed his room. I am baffled by his conduct. If he is so desirous of locating himself more conveniently in the hotel, why does he not move to number 202, which is the nearest available room to the front? Perhaps I can make his inability to locate himself permanently an excuse for starting a conversation. I see we are closer neighbors now, I might casually say, but that is too banal. I must await a better opportunity. He has done it again. Now he is occupying number 209. I am intrigued by his little game. I waste hours trying to fathom its point. What possible motive could he have? I should think he would get on the hotel people's nerves. I wonder what our combination bellhop chambermaid thinks of having to prepare four rooms for a single guest. If he were not stone deaf, I would ask him. At present, I feel too exhausted to attempt such an enervating conversation. I am tremendously interested in the pale man's next move. He must either skip a room or remain where he is for a permanent guest, a very old lady, occupies number 208. She has not budged from her room since I have been here, and I imagine that she does not intend to. I wonder what the pale man will do. I await his decision with the nervous excitement of a devotee of the track on the eve of a big race. After all, I have so little diversion. Well, the mysterious guest was not forced to remain where he was, nor did he have to skip a room. The lady in number 208 simplified matters by conveniently dying no one knows the cause of her death but it is generally attributed to old age she was buried this morning i was among the curious few who attended her funeral when i returned home from the mortuary i was in time to see the pale man leaving her room already he had moved in he favored me with a smile whose meaning i have tried in vain to decipher i cannot but believe that he meant it to have some significance He acted as if there were between us some secret that I failed to appreciate, but then perhaps his smile was meaningless after all and only ambiguous by chance, like that of the Mona Lisa. My man of mystery now resides in number 207, and I am not the least surprised. I would have been astonished if he had not made his scheduled move. I have almost given up trying to understand his eccentric conduct. I do not know a single thing more about him than I knew the day he arrived, and I still wonder whence he came. There's something indefinitely foreign about his manner. I am curious to hear his voice. I like to imagine that he speaks the exotic tongue of some faraway country. If only I could somehow inveigle him into conversation. I wish that I were possessed of that glib assurance of a college boy who can address himself to the most distinguished celebrity without batting an eye. It is no wonder that I am only an assistant professor. I am worried. This morning, I awoke to find myself lying prone upon the floor. I was fully clothed. I must have fallen exhausted there after I returned to my room last night. I wonder if my condition is more serious than I had suspected. Until now, I have been inclined to discount the fears of those who have pulled a long face about me, for the first time, I recall the prolonged handclasp of the president when he bade me goodbye from the university. Obviously, he never expected to see me alive again. Of course, I am not that unwell. Nevertheless, I must be more careful. Thank heaven I have no dependents to worry about. I have not even a wife, for I was never willing to exchange the loneliness of a bachelor for the loneliness of a husband. I can say in all sincerity that the prospect of death does not frighten me. Speculation about life beyond the grave has always bored me. Whatever it is, or is not, I'll try to get along. I have been so preoccupied about the sudden turn of my own affairs that I had neglected to make note of the most extraordinary incident. The pale man has done an astounding thing. He has skipped three rooms and moved all the way to number 203. We are now very close neighbors. We shall meet oftener, and my chances for making his acquaintance are now greater. I have confined myself to my bed during the last few days, and I have had my food brought to me. I even called a local doctor, whom I suspect to be a quack. He looked me over with professional indifference and told me not to leave my room. For some reason, he does not want me to climb stairs. For this bit of information, he received a $10 bill which, as I directed him, he fished out of my coat pocket. A pickpocket could not have done it better. He had not been gone long when I was visited by the room clerk. That Worthy suggested with a great show of kindly concern that I use the facilities of the local hospital. It was so modern and all that. With more firmness than I have been able to muster in a long time, I gave him to understand that I intended to remain where I am frowning sullenly, he stiffly retired. The doctor must have paused long enough downstairs to tell him a pretty story. It is obvious that he is afraid I shall die in his best room. The pale man is up to his old tricks. Last night, when I tottered down the hall, the door of number 202 was ajar. Without thinking, I looked inside. The pale man sat in a rocking chair, idly smoking a cigarette. He looked up into my eyes and smiled that peculiar, ambiguous smile that has so deeply puzzled me. I moved on down the corridor, not so much mystified as annoyed. The whole mystery of the man's conduct is beginning to irk me. It is all so insane, so utterly lacking in motive. I feel that I shall never meet the pale man, but at least I am going to learn his identity. Tomorrow, I shall ask for the room clerk and deliberately interrogate him. I know now, I know the identity of the pale man, and I know the meaning of his smile. Early this afternoon, I summoned the room clerk to my bedside. Please tell me, I asked abruptly, who is the man in number 202? The clerk stared wearily and uncomprehendingly. You must be mistaken, that room is unoccupied. Oh, but it is, I snapped in irritation. I myself saw the man there only two nights ago. He is a tall, handsome fellow with dark eyes and hair. He is unusually pale. He checked in the day that I arrived. The hotel man regarded me dubiously, as if I were trying to impose upon him. But I assure you, there is no such person in the house. As for his checking in when you did, you were the only guest we registered that day. What? Why, I've seen him twenty times. First he had number 212 at the end of the corridor, then he kept moving towards the front. Now he's next door in number 202. The room clerk threw up his hands. You're crazy, he exclaimed, and I saw that he meant what he said. I shut up at once and dismissed him. After he had gone, I heard him rattling the knob of the pale man's door. There is no doubt that he believes the room to be empty. Thus it is that I can now understand the events of the past few weeks. I can now comprehend the significance of the death in number 207. I even feel partly responsible for the old lady's passing. After all, I brought the pale man with me. But it was not I who fixed his path. Why he chose to approach me room after room through the length of this dreary hotel, why his path crossed the threshold of the woman in number 207, those mysteries I cannot explain. I suppose I should have guessed his identity when he skipped the three rooms the night I fell unconscious upon the floor. In a single night of triumph, he advanced until he was almost to my door. He will be coming by and by to inhabit this room, his ultimate goal. When he comes, I shall at least be able to return his smile of grim recognition. Meanwhile, I have only to wait beyond my bolted door. The door swings slowly open. thanks for listening to this episode of our spooky shorts we had a really fun time recording these deliciously scary stories for you and we hope that you enjoyed them too if you want to follow us you can find us on pretty much any social media on facebook instagram and tiktok we're at wicked weird and grim and on twitter we're just at wicked weird grim you can also find us wherever you listen to podcasts feel free to leave us a voice message on anchor we're always excited to hear from you guys And consider joining our Patreon army, which has a lot of great goodies, especially coming closer to Halloween. You won't regret it. As always, thanks for listening. You'll hear us again this coming Friday for our extra special Halloween episode. We're really excited, and we really hope that you come out to join us on this really special edition of Wicked, Weird, and Grim. Until then, stay spooky. Bye.